Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Sarah Fenske. So if an individual Catholic takes the position... I believe this is what my faith requires. Even if the Pope disagrees, the question is, can the government show that this person is lying or or untruthful about what they actually believe? But what prevents that line, I mean, whether or not it's tied to something, for me to go in tomorrow and just say, you know what, guys? Every one of my employees who works here, my religious belief says, you have to give me 40% of your money And it goes to me because I can spend this in a way that God wants me to spend it. This idea that, and I agree, the ACLU and all of these other groups were out there defending Muslims post 9-11. But state legislatures weren't. That's true. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske, in for Elaine Shaw. A St. Louis physician is suing her former employer, Mercy. Mercy required her to get the COVID-19 vaccine. She says that mandate violated her practice of religion. She's Catholic, and so is the hospital chain. Does that affect her First Amendment claims? How about the homeless outreach worker who was fired after getting crossways with St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones? He got fired, but he's suing the mayor, not the nonprofit that fired him. He also says it's a First Amendment case. And what about another First Amendment case? This one involves the government telling the Post-Dispatch it can't publish a story about an accused cop killer. Does Supreme Court precedent back up that kind of prior restraint? That's a whole lot of questions about the First Amendment. And so we're lucky that today is our legal roundtable. And so to help us make sense of the law in these cases and so many more is Dave Rowland. He is the Director of Litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. Dave, welcome back. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's always a pleasure to be on. And we're also joined today by Javad Kazali. He's a former federal prosecutor and an attorney and founding member of the St. Louis firm Kazali Wersh. Javad, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. And last but never least, a last-minute pinch hitter. We are joined today by Susan McGraw. She's a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law and director of its criminal defense legal clinic. Susan, I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to join us today on some very short notice. I'm glad to be here. So let's get right to it. An outreach worker for the St. Patrick's Center says he was fired after criticizing St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones. Yitzhak Simone said he worked with people living in the downtown encampments that the city was trying to clear. Uh, And Simon, sorry, I think I mispronounced his name there. Simon says the mayor personally called his boss at St. Patrick's Center and that she threatened to ensure St. Patrick's Center would not receive funds from the city unless Simon was fired. Simon was fired. (laughs) Now he's filed a lawsuit. He's suing the city, not his former employer. Dave, does he have a First Amendment case here? If the facts bear out um, as he's alleged them, I think he certainly does. Mm -hmm. So the the question in a retaliation case is, number one, was the uh, plaintiff engaged in activity protected by the First Amendment? Number two, does the evidence show that the government 
took some action against them that would have chilled a person of, of ordinary uh, firmness from engaging in their First Amendment rights? And then number three, was the government's action motivated at least in part by uh, the citizens' engagement in First Amendment activity? And so if he can show that the mayor did indeed make a phone call to his employer to get him fired because of the way that he was engaging in free speech, I think he could make out a, a First Amendment retaliation claim. Hmm. But the devil is going to be in the details. Can he actually prove his allegations? That may be harder than um, than we might expect. And Javad, in this case, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, according to this, you know, this legal filing, Perhaps all the mayor did was pick up the phone and tell these guys, hey, you got to get this guy in line or this gonna this is going to affect your funding. Is his lawsuit against her or against his former employer that then fired him? So he has three separate claims on the lawsuit. One of them, as Dave just said, is his general First Amendment um, claim. He also has a conspiracy to violate a First Amendment claim. So he is arguing that a group of people, the mayor, his employers, and at the time, um, Yusuf Scoggins, who was Scoggin, who was the director of, I think, um, Health and Human Services for the city, had all worked on this together to get him fired. So that's a hard burden. But there's also a third claim that I find to be very interesting. It's a tortious interference claim. And a tortious interference occurs when a group of people have some form of contract or agreement. So an argument between that he's making is, I had one with my boss. And then a third party comes in there and disrupts that agreement. So that's a state law claim, but because it's First Amendment, this is all being heard in federal court. So at this point, we're just looking at what he's alleged. Yeah. The city is going to come back and say, this happened or this didn't happen. But if what he alleges did occur, that's problematic. You have an entity that is in some ways dependent on government funding being told to do something, and then the, the action is firing somebody. Just the one last point here is all the time people start yelling, First Amendment, you're violating my First Amendment rights. You won't let me stand up at the baseball game. And the first thing you say is, no, First Amendment is only when the government does it. But in this case, the argument is that two high-ranking government people did it. So I'm very interested to see how this plays out. Yeah, Sue, I know you're, you're coming into this one kind of new, but what do you make of these claims here? Do you think this is going to be a hard one um, for this fired worker, Simon, uh, to be made whole in court? Yeah, I don't know how you would make him whole again. You know, clearly this was his passion, doing homeless outreach, and that opportunity's gone to him now. Um, I think it's concerning that the primary homeless agency um, in St. Louis chose to uh, be more concerned about the funders and what the funders uh, might perceive his role to be than what he'd actually done. I, I will admit I have some sympathy for St. Patrick in this case because let's let's again assume that what's in this lawsuit is true and they get this call from the mayor saying I'm going to make sure you don't get funding if you don't get rid of this guy. Is there something they could have done here where they could have let him go ahead and keep expressing his, his First Amendment right to criticize her and then sued if they didn't get the funding? It doesn't seem like that's on the road to an easy resolution. Uh, yeah, I mean, that 
ends up taking a lot of resources away from people who are doing some of the hardest work in St. Louis. And I do think that there's one other fact that's kind of lost in this. What Mr. Simon claims he was doing that ruffled everybody's feathers are acts that he took while he was not working. Mm-hmm. It was his day off. He was mm-hmm. down at an encampment, and he claims that he was down there criticizing things that a lot of us in St. Louis are critical of. And to be honest, a lot of things that this administration was critical of the previous administration doing. So I think that adds another wrinkle to this. So you may have a question about this case, and we have three expert lawyers here. We're curious to try to get uh, answers to those questions. You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Um, Dave Javad raised some interesting points there. Yeah, he really did. And and I want to follow up on it. Um, So that last point actually may be why it would have been difficult for St. Patrick's to file the lawsuit, Um, because this wasn't... If he had been making these statements on his own or rather uh, on his employed time, on his employer's time, then potentially you could attribute his expressive acts to the employer. Therefore, if the government acted to punish or or discourage those employed you know, acts, um, then you've harmed the employer. But he, if he was doing it on his own time, then you're not necessarily harming the employer for expressive acts, for its expressive acts. Yeah. Um, and it, so it, it certainly does complicate the situation. And it may be that that's why St. Patrick's itself would not have had a First Amendment claim under these circumstances. And they felt they had no choice then but to fire him. Yeah. But it also goes to the other side of assuming this is all true. It weakens St. Patrick's defenses of why they fired him. There's something different between saying, hey, while you're working for us, you're doing this under our banner. If today, Sarah, you went on the air and said, as the person who represents St. Louis Public Radio, I demand blah, blah, blah. If you weren't authorized to do that by your boss, that's an action. And that doesn't violate First Amendment. It doesn't invoke the government. But now that you start really tying money to action, to politics, it's troublesome. Troublesome. That's a good word for it. Now, also in the news this month is another lawsuit against the city. This is actually the second lawsuit it's faced from an interim police chief suing over the fact that he wasn't promoted to permanent chief. Two different white males found themselves in this situation and accordingly filed lawsuits. This suit is from Lieutenant Colonel Michael Sack, who people do feel like did a decent job as interim chief, certainly better than the prior interim chief who uh, got a settlement from the city after he was passed over for for this. Uh, Javad, what do you make of this lawsuit that he's filed here? So we're in a very bizarre place in the criminal justice world in St. Louis, where now when there are people out there making the true argument that the really oppressed people in America, in St. Louis, in the criminal justice system, are white police officers. Look, we currently have a white police chief. You know, the argument that I wasn't picked because I was white when another chief was picked that is white, I think there's some issues there. The other idea that, well, I was the most qualified person from the St. Louis Police Department to do this, you know. When the previous chief was the chief, we sued him a lot. We made a lot of money. I mean, $10 million they settled in cases from one night's action. 
that police that money you know i'm going to cancun tomorrow i'm using that money to go to cancun um that money then that same police chief came out afterwards and said well i was discriminated against because i didn't get picked Mm -hmm. and he we're just getting into the cycle where these officers are arguing that they have a right to a job and it I've been an employer for a long time. Sometimes I put out a job ad, I interview people, I have people who I think are qualified that I want, and then I get to the people who are next on the list. And if the list isn't good enough, I start it over again. I don't have any obligation to say that this, this is who gets the job. And that, that's, I should cut in here, that's exactly what the city is alleged to have done here, that they had a short list of people, it got down to having two white males, and at that point, Mayor Tashara Jones uh, later explained her actions, this is a quote from her, quote, I only had two white male candidates to choose from, and St. Louis is more diverse than white males, our police department is more diverse. She offered this as her reason for reopening this panel up. I'm thinking about the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision in Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard. We used to hear statements like this a lot in recent years. Does that decision make this legally problematic in a way maybe it wouldn't have been a couple years ago? Dave, any thoughts on that? It very well may. Uh, Let me start off by saying that I absolutely understand and sympathize with an African-American mayor of a largely African-American city saying, we want the person in charge of our police department to be sensitive to the concerns of our population. That is an absolutely legitimate thing to to pursue. I'm going to offer some free advice to any elected official or employer. <laughs> um, do not say, you know what, I'm unhappy with the race of the people that I have to choose from. Therefore, we're going to go a different direction. Um, in the current legal and constitutional landscape, that is a very problematic thing to say. So the um, the recent affirmative action decision from the U.S. Supreme Court um, basically suggested quite clearly um, that the the Supreme Court no longer is willing to tolerate decisions that are made with race as a controlling factor, rather than uh, you know simply one aspect of uh, informing people about the merit of a particular candidate. So if she had said something like, "Hey, we've got these two internal candidates from the police department. I want an outsider." And also, while we're at it, it would be that might have been valid. To- or if she had phrased it, you know, I want to make sure that the people that we're considering. Uh, are going to be sensitive to the concerns of our citizens. That would have been, I think, absolutely above reproach. But but having said, I've got two white guys and I'm not happy with that, um, I don't think that it's going to end up making the case here because she did ultimately end up hiring a white person to fill this role. And so I think that makes this a very difficult case to win. But but I think that she has definitely complicated the situation by saying out loud, you know, yeah, yeah I, I'm not happy that I only have two white guys to choose from. So is your advice that people need to just put a slightly better window dressing on how they express that sentiment? <laughs> well, I mean, I... I personally believe we want to look at people on their own individual merit. Um, I think that there are certainly racial factors that can go into that, particularly when we're talking about a majority black city and an African-American administration. Um, I think that's a, a totally legitimate factor to consider. You just don't want to come out and say, yeah, I, I don't like white guys and I want to redo this process as a result. 
So let me push back on that because I think this one line, I agree with you, is problematic. Yeah. I also think it was cherry picked. You know, the mayor was very oh, quite, quite possibly. Yeah, was very clear that she wanted somebody who could look at the holistic issues here that the police department has. Sitting on my side of the table when I'm there, I can't even possibly fathom how anybody from within this police department would even make it to the finals on this. I mean, we've got a police department that shoots people at rates three, four, five times higher. We had a police department while Michael Sack was in top levels here where one officer killed another officer while they were playing Russian roulette that was probably a sex act. We had another um, office. We had two other cases where in the same night, $10 million would pay out. We have a black police officer shot by a white police officer in his house. We've got officers being busted left and right for stealing time. And then we say, you know what? Maybe one of our top four choices should be from within this police department. That in and of itself is problematic. And I think it's great that we brought in somebody from the outside. And I think it's great that it's somebody who's dealt with these issues. Um, So that statement in and of itself, I agree, was problematic. But the context of everything that the mayor said, there were a multitude of reasons not to pick an internal candidate who's been involved in all of this stuff. Susan? Yeah, you know, it's no secret that the general St. Louis community has a quarrel with the police department. One of the reasons they're ineffective is because nobody trusts them. They go into neighborhoods, you know, under-income neighborhoods, and people won't talk to them. They can't get evidence. They can't get witness statements. I think she was communicating in a way with those neighborhoods and saying, I recognize that this relationship is not working. And I want you to know that I'm going to uh, do everything in my power to at least pick from a diverse panel of people when making a decision. I think that's really important for people in St. Louis to hear. And yet now potentially fraught legally. It's interesting this moment that we're in, thanks to that Supreme Court ruling. We're going to need to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to dig into a Missouri Supreme Court ruling that has to do with parents being sent to jail if their kids miss too much school. This should strike fear into all of our hearts. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske. I'm in for Elaine Cha today, here with our Legal Roundtable. Now, I want to dive back into a few cases that we've talked about here in previous months. There's been some major developments, and that is certainly true of the lawsuit challenging a state law that allowed parents to be jailed if their kids missed too much school. The Missouri Supreme Court issued its ruling in that case this past month, and they said, yeah, 
It's fine. If kids miss too much school, the parents can be sent to jail. Dave, you were here, I believe, on the air last time we discussed this case. What do you make of the actual ruling now that the court has come out unanimously? Um, honestly, Sarah, I'm, I'm very frustrated. Um, so the, the question in this case is whether this statute was unconstitutionally vague. What the statute says is that if you've got children of a certain age, parents are required to make sure that they attend regularly at a at a school, an approved school. And the question is, could a person of ordinary intelligence understand where the line is drawn between what is permitted and what is not permitted based on this phrase, regular attendance or attend regularly? Um, and the the unanimous Missouri Supreme Court ended up saying that what that means is, is your child is expected to attend every day unless there is... Um, an exception built into the statute. Now, let me share a story. Yesterday, my oldest, when they were getting out of the the uh, car, uh, accidentally closed the door on the hand of my seven-year-old. Oh. It did not do any serious damage to his hand, but he was upset. He was crying. And my wife made the decision just to keep him with her sure. um, instead of dropping him off at school. Is this the part where I should... Uh recommend that you take your Fifth Amendment right for self-incrimination <laughs> on the air. I'm, I'm willing to put myself out there on this. So uh, according to this this unanimous decision, um, choosing not to send a child to school, even though we weren't getting him medical treatment or anything like that, technically, that means we were not causing him to regularly attend his school. Wow. And and so the, the way the majority kind of dealt with this is they said, well, we have this precedent that said that you can interpret to do something regularly mean, uh, means on a regular basis. And they pointed to this case where a business was open on Tuesdays and Thursdays every week. And they said, well, that's regular attendance where you can predict it like clockwork. Um, and that's how they said, so when we say regular attendance, that means you need to attend every day like clockwork, every day that the school is open. I mean, kids aren't clocks. Kids are not clocks. And, and there are perfectly legitimate reasons that parents might choose to have their kids out of school, even if it's not for an illness. Like if, if there's an opportunity to uh, go and uh, visit a museum or uh, if relatives are in town that they wouldn't get to see otherwise, you know, there, there are plenty of reasons why a parent might hold their child out of school. Um, and yet, now that the, the law has been interpreted this way, it, it at least opens the possibility that they could be prosecuted for it. Not necessarily the likelihood, but the possibility Susan, you can see how the public defenders decided they wanted to challenge this law, but didn't work. It didn't work, and that's unfortunate. You know, anyone who's been to opening day at the stadium, mm -hmm. there are half the people there are children who should be in school, and their parents took them out uh, to go to this game. And I think the amount of discretion um, that's allowed uh, it really makes this difficult. You know, the, the school handbook said they should be in school. Well, as lawyers, we can tell you there's a big difference between should and must. Yeah. Right? Should is a recommendation. We, the child, all things equal, should be there. It's not must. Your child must be there. Um, and it, as a lawyer, I would have difficulty interpreting that. Uh it's really unfortunate if this gets applied more broadly. Um, these are small children, I understand. You know, the concern is 
that when you're talking about grown children, about teenagers, there are parents who can't get those kids to go to school. You can drop them off at the door and they're going to go out the back door or they're bigger than their parents. You know, it's an alarming precedent. So I I wanted to follow up on that, um, that the district had its own policy uh, because the the court made a big deal about that. So the district said uh, that the students should attend 90 percent of of the classroom hours, not days, classroom hours. And the problem I have with that is that's not what the statute says. So the districts have the flexibility to create their own standards. And the court was treating that as though the district standard could be attributed to the statute. And I don't think that that's correct at all. But I think one of the ironies of the opinion is after they go to the length of saying, yes, regular attendance means you're supposed to be there every day that it's open, they then fall back on this idea that they trust that it's not going to be applied too stringently. But one of the reasons that we have a void for vagueness claim um, is to prevent that kind of discretion, to make sure that that people understand where the line is drawn between what's allowed and what's not. And if each district can create its own standard and it's not governed by a clear statute, I think that that's a huge problem. But unfortunately, it's not a problem that, that any of the judges on the Supreme Court perceived. Yeah, I've got a few other issues with this too. I don't think that the this case takes into account that we're once again criminalizing poverty. You're talking about in some rural areas, what happens when single mom's car breaks down and she can't get the Mm -hmm. kid to school? What happens, you know, the next case that we're probably talking about is going to talk about the fact that we have been in a global pandemic. What happens when a caregiver gets COVID and the kid is still fine, but the caregiver can't get the person there? And I think that this is once again us in Missouri focusing on the wrong things when it comes to education. One-fourth of the schools in Missouri only go to school four days a week. Mm. You already have burdens on parents in rural areas on what to do with kids this other day. 142 days. So in the rural areas, each time you're out, it's actually a higher percentage towards this number. We've got This idea that parents get in trouble for not taking their kids to school. But a parent could just say, I have no educational background. I have nothing. I'm going to homeschool my kid. I'm going to pull them out, and I'm just going to let them watch YouTube all day. Our legislature has said, totally great. Let's encourage this. And my biggest problem here is there were a lot of adults in the room that should have prevented this from happening. The school administration should have realized that going after a parent and criminalizing this was a waste of resource. The prosecutors saying, of all of the crimes I'm going to worry about, this one where a mom sent the kid to Iowa so that he could spend some time with uh, their dad, this is a crime. And then this is now going to judges and appeals and all of this. Could you imagine having to take three days off of work to be on a jury to hear a case about wasting people's time because they're not supposed to be where they're supposed to be? Yeah. I mean, you're pointing out some really good things about this case. Dave, I'm going to give you the last word on this one, though. Yeah, at the risk of beating a dead horse, one other real concern I had with this opinion is they made a lot of of the fact that um, schools receive funding 
based on the number of days and right. potentially hours that children are in schools. And I do understand that that is an important consideration for the schools. However, um, the schools exist for the children, not the children for the schools. And, and if we are elevating a school's concern about its funding over a parent's discretion to manage their children and to take care of them the best they know how, I think that that's, that's a, a great concern. Let's change the funding system if we need to, but let's not punish parents because schools are worried about where their funding is coming from. And if you have a question for our legal roundtable, or maybe you want to argue with them about the conclusions they're coming to about this case, our phone lines are open, 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Shifting gears here, we also previously discussed a rare case of prior restraint against the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. A judge had ordered the paper not to publish anything about a report that they obtained legally. It was a mental health evaluation of an accused cop killer accidentally made public in the court docket. Now, you might say that sounds like something that we shouldn't see, but the Supreme Court has said that telling a newspaper what it cannot publish is an extraordinary remedy. That's something in the newspaper business we cling to. Yet months later, the paper is still being blocked from publishing this story. There was a hearing in this past month. The block still stands. It's been three months. Susan, should we be upset that this newspaper is being gagged? You know, I, I think it's a balancing act. Um, what people need to know is that these reports contain uh, really private medical information, any diagnoses, any medications, any treatments. That's all in the report, and no one is entitled to see that information. It creates a couple problems. One of the big ones um, is that if this is released, how are you going to pick a jury in St. Louis? I am always overestimating um, how much people in St. Louis read the newspaper because I'm a newspaper reader, but uh, it could just blow up the whole trial and force the case to be moved to somewhere else at great expense. Um, this is also protected material in there. You know, if you wanted to release it to anybody else, you'd have to get a HIPAA, a HIPAA release. I know the newspaper doesn't need to, but people aren't entitled to see private medical information about other people, even if they're charged with a crime. I mean, Susan does make a good point that this report should have never been made public. But the report was made public. Javad is now this this genie's out of the bottle. Or can we keep it stuffed down into the bottle legally? So, no. I mean, once it's out, it's out. But I understand the concerns about tainting your jury pool. Sure. There are mechanisms for that. I mean, the president, the former president of the United States is going to be on trial in four different trials. There are ways through voir dire, through questioning, where you can get beyond that, as opposed to something like this, where in the legal community, this is big. Unfortunately and sadly, I would imagine the majority of the city doesn't even know the circumstances of this one officer dying. And it was very tragic, happened very close to my house. But that's not what somebody's caught up on. The Supreme Court cases, though, I mean, look back at the Pentagon Papers. These were classified documents. These were more than just a specific person. I don't want somebody to know my mental health issues. And remember, the reason that this report even happened was 
probably in anticipation of the defendant taking the position that I have a mental capacity issue and I shouldn't be on trial for this. But in the Pentagon Papers, the Supreme Court allowed classified documents to be published. And if classified documents can be published, I don't see as strong an argument here. It is close. You know, one thing that I think Sue would hang her hat on is there are two specific provisions within um, the Missouri statutes. I think it's 555, 552.02 and 0.3 that specifically say these cannot be released. I would not want to be the judge in in this case. so I, you know, I'm hearing from from you and and from other First Amendment types that like, yeah, the judge can't just block this, and yet it has been months, and this is still blocked. Is there something that the Post Dispatch should be doing if they truly want to publish this story, where they could escalate this, or are we at the mercy of this St. Louis judge who's like, yep, for now, status quo, there's a restraining order. So this is where I'm a little bit at the limit of my own personal legal wisdom. Um, ordinarily. If you've got an important federal issue presented in a state-level case, you can remove the issue to federal court and have that dealt with. But because of the fact that this is a a criminal proceeding and the um, injunction, the restraining order, is against a third party, mm-hmm. um, it's not at all clear that that's an option here. Now, maybe the Post-Dispatch could file their own lawsuit against the judge in federal court mm-hmm. uh, to try and, and undo what this state court judge has done, but it's not entirely clear that that's a legitimate avenue for them to take. There's also the possibility that the Post-Dispatch could go to the Court of Appeals and um, seek what's called an extraordinary writ, so uh, either mandamus or a writ of prohibition to try and um, undo what the judge has done here. Uh, but even then, it's not certain that that the Court of Appeals would be willing to intervene. So there are any number of potential routes that could be tried, but I don't I don't think that there's any clear path. Mm-hmm. There's one other one, too. Oh, sure. What you got? They could just publish it and see what happens. I mean, we have seen repeatedly judges order reporters to give up sources. And virtually yeah, yeah. across the board, the reporters say, my commitment is not to the criminal justice system. It's to the First Amendment. And we've had people locked up for whiles on it. So that is another option. That's which bold. goes back which goes back Extraordinarily to, bold, to, but an option. But but it goes back to my whole idea about this isn't a front page news story, this underlying case. If it was, I think you might see something more radical like yeah. that. But because it's not a front page uh, issue. That's why I'm less worried about tainting the jury pool. I do wonder if there's maybe a little bit of queasiness on the, the part of the Post-Dispatch. And I respect that they are fighting this and they, you know, on the principle of prior restraint, you can't stop us from publishing. But if they feel some of these same things that Susan is bringing up, that this is a person's private mental health evaluation, that this apparently includes excerpts from calls he made from the jail. Like, do the people really have a right to know that? Now, I don't want a judge deciding whether or not something is in good taste to publish. That should be up to the editor. But I can see how maybe the paper doesn't want to bust things wide open and try to make this their Pentagon Papers because people would go, wait a minute, you're going to jail in order to have published this? Well, I will say 
to the Post-Dispatch's credit, there are various cases right now where the city of St. Louis has documents relating to police shootings that they are not, they are fighting to keep um, confidential and away from the public. And the Post-Dispatch is very aggressively on at least, I think, two fronts litigating to get those moved forward. So I think you could say, hey, if they're being this aggressive on this one and kind of sitting back on the other one, there's probably a balancing act going on there. I don't think that there's really any public interest here. I, you know, I always come down on the side of the public defenders, but the public really doesn't have an interest or isn't entitled to this information. And it was, it was filed in error. It was, I think, I'm guessing filed by uh, Department of Mental Health's lawyers, and they failed to file it under seal. Our, our two other panelists are bridling here. Dave, I saw your hand up first. Yeah, so I I understand the sensitivity that you're that you're talking about there. I don't think that it's a constitutional issue. So, um, you know, the 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 standard that gets applied here is not well. Does a court think that the public really has an interest in this? That's a question for the newspaper outlet to decide. Like, if they don't think the public's interested, they won't publish it. If if they do think that they're interested, they will. And then we'll find out. The market will tell us, you know, whether they're interested or not. And, and when it comes to privacy, um, the defendant in this case may have a cause of action against the people who erroneously release the information. They do not have a cause of action against the newspaper unless what the newspaper ultimately publishes is false. Hmm. Um, And and so, you know, it is, I I think, truly unfortunate that this information was erroneously made public. But now that it's public, I don't think privacy is a defense to muzzle uh, a newspaper that thinks that the public may have an interest in the story. And I do have to break in here. We're going to have to take another break, uh, but we're going to come back with our legal roundtable here in just a minute. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske. I'm in for Elaine Cha today here with our legal roundtable. I do want to just come back very briefly to the issue we were talking about just before the break. This involves the the case of prior restraint where the Post-Dispatch is being held back from publishing a story about an accused cop killer. And I think Susan has made a very eloquent defense of why this report should be held back, even as a, a journalist who believes in the First Amendment more than anything. I'm like, huh, is this really in the public's interest? Javad had an interesting answer to that. So, you know, if I were to be putting on the attorney for the Post-Dispatches hat, I would agree with what Dave said. That's not the issue. This is a constitutional issue. But on top of that, I would argue that there is a public interest here. We had a police shooting where an officer died and the public has interest in the case, wants to know what caused this to happen. And I think some of these documents may go to that. And... The public isn't a jury. You know, sometimes the public wants access to things that may not be within the purview of a jury. So a report about the mental 
mindset of a person at the time they shot an officer. I could see how the Post-Dispatch would argue that there's a public interest in that. Hmm. I'm going to let Javad have that final word, just not to keep beating this horse. Uh, Let's move on to the next horse that we will enjoy flogging. Uh, A prominent local physician during the fight against COVID-19 is suing her former employer. Dr. Molly James traveled to New York City to fight on the front lines of the pandemic. But later, when her employer Mercy issued a vaccine mandate, she refused to get the shot. She said she prayed on the decision and was, quote, guided by God to decline this treatment. Mercy denied Dr. James's application for a, rel- a religious exemption. She resigned instead of getting fired, and she's now filed suit. So, Javad, going to throw a quick question to you that as a layman, I'm like, can you even sue for wrongful termination if you didn't get terminated? Yeah, um, there's something called constructive discharge. If you argue that your employer made it so bad that you had no choice but to leave. Um, Classic example is a person is at work and their employer is sexually harassing them and doing things so bad and the person decides to quit to protect themselves. They have a window of time then to sit back and say, now I want to exercise my legal remedies. So you absolutely can. Okay. Whether it fits into this case, I'm not so sure. Yeah, so this is a very interesting case. Susan, you work for a Catholic university, and I'm interested in some of the issues here. This is a Catholic, but she said she needed a religious exemption from a Catholic employer's policies. I imagine a jury might be like, whoa, hey, this is not like a Catholic is telling a Muslim that they can't do what they want to do. Does this make it more of an uphill climb? You know, I'm not sure if it does or not. I can tell you that the university, St. Louis University, which is a Catholic university, did allow for exceptions. Um, I think the issue here becomes more important because it's the physical safety of the people in the hospital. It's the physical safety of the other physicians. So I, I think if you weigh what's most important, you're going to come down on not, you know, remember the beginning of the um, epidemic. People were dying mm-hmm. frequently of this illness. And so, Dave, I know you're a big religious freedom guy. Where do you think her rights to express her religion, as idiosyncratic as it might be from, say, other Catholics or a Catholic institution, what happens when that collides with the hospital's desire to make sure it has a vaccinated staff. So I think there are three concepts that are important here. One is the idea of free exercise of religion. In other words, you feel like your religion compels you to engage in an act or to refrain from engaging in an act. Then you have religious discrimination, where someone takes an act against you because they disfavor your religious uh, beliefs in some way. And then you have the question of state action. So... Had this doctor been at a public hospital, um, I think she actually might legitimately have had a claim under Missouri's Religious Freedom Restoration Act Mm. uh, because that prohibits the government from taking action against someone uh, because they have done something that is substantially motivated by their religious belief or refrained from doing something because of, you know, uh, their religious belief. But this is not a public institution. It's a private institution. Um, It is not action against her based on religious discrimination. Mm -hmm. Um, It is simply she believes her religion requires something and her private employer disagrees about that. Um, And that is not discrimination. That Mm -hmm. is not, I think, a basis for a claim under the Missouri Human Rights Act. So I I think that this uh, lawsuit is likely to go nowhere. And again, 
um, you know, I, I wholeheartedly <clears throat> approve of, of people who follow what their religious uh, uh, beliefs dictate. But in this situation, I don't believe she has legitimate legal recourse against her employer. Javad, anything you'd want to argue with there? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I've run into on this is how do we determine if a religious belief is legitimate? That's such a good question. The Pope has come out and said that protecting yourself against the COVID uh, pandemic is a moral obligation for Catholics. Okay? I don't know a lot about Catholicism. I think he's the boss, you know? <laughs> like, like, but, I, I don't know. I actually know a lot of Catholics who probably argue with you on that, but that, that's kind but, of the Catholic but, but way. At a certain so. point, though, at what point do I get to just say, hey, what I want to do is now my religious belief. And I think that we have flexed too much in that direction. There was a case um, that went to the Supreme Court that was involving, and David's right, this has um, something to do with the federal government, with a U.S. postal employee who worked in rural routes that were way out in the country, and the only way that they could do all of these was you had to deliver on Fridays. I'm mm. sorry, not on Fridays, on Sundays. Mm. And he applied for that position, got the position, and then immediately said, I can't work on Sundays. And then his coworkers were like, well, that screws us. We have to go and do it. And he won on that case. Hmm. You know, So we're getting to the point where I just wonder at what point I can just say, you know what? I don't want to do this. Why? My religion. And we need to have, you know, the, the pendulum is swung. And especially with state actions that we're seeing with the laws that we're going to. And then I always ask myself, having grown up in a country with the middle name Muhammad, where were these laws before? It just seems, and are they being applied equitably? Um, so I worry about that. And, and now I know that Dave's going to yell at me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm absolutely not going to yell at you. Um, <laughs> What I will say is is that there have been attorneys out there fighting for folks with names Muhammad and, and other. So the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, uh, which is one of the groups that I – it was actually my, my 1L summer. I clerked for the Beckett Fund in their Washington, D.C. offices. Um, there are groups that have taken religious liberty very seriously across the board. Uh, but I, I want to read part of Missouri's Religious Freedom Protection Act so that we understand exactly what it says. It says, the exercise of religion is defined as an act or refusal to act that is substantially motivated by religious belief, whether or not the religious exercise is compulsory or central to a larger system of religious belief. So, so if a, an individual Catholic takes the position, I believe this is what my faith requires, even if the Pope disagrees and says this is certainly not something that's central to our religious system, the question is, can the government show that this person is lying or, or untruthful about what they actually believe? But what prevents that line, I mean, whether or not it's tied to something, for me to go in tomorrow and just say, you know what, guys, every one of my employees who works here, my religious belief says you have to give me 40% of your money, and it goes to me because I can spend this in a way that God wants me to spend it. This idea that, and I agree, the ACLU and all of these other groups were out there defending Muslims post 9-11, but state legislatures weren't. That's true. You know, all of a sudden, this comes into a whole bunch of conservative white people not wanting to take medicine. This woman here, 
Her new practice is she's pushing for iver- ivermectin, the, the parasite, to go through. She can say, God came to me and told me this, and now we've got legislators jumping in and doing this. And now we've got this idea of what if your religious belief conflict conflicts with my religious belief? What if the church, what if the employer here says the reason that we're mandating this is because the Pope said we need to do this? Now we've got two religions fighting against each other. Is that really where we want our judiciary making decisions? At what point are we getting into the separation of church and state? I feel like this needs to be an entire legal seminar because I would actually pay to hear the two of you continue to discuss this matter. Dave, I'm going to give let's, you let's just get that one set minute. Up yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I, again, I think we, we need to distinguish between private action and state action. And, and where we have a state action that is requiring uh, somebody to either to act in a way that's contrary to their professed belief or um, to refrain from acting in a way that they believe they're required to. Um, that's when this gets triggered. And it's not a new issue. It's, it's one that's been brought up for decades. Um, we look back at the Bob Jones case uh, where you had a, a conservative school that wanted to prohibit interracial dating. And the federal government says, if you do this, you lose federal funds. And they said, you can't take away federal funds because you're punishing us for a religiously motivated belief. And the court said, absolutely not. (laughs) Like, you can indeed remove federal funds. Um, There was a school in Georgetown, uh, or rather a a house in Georgetown, that wanted to declare itself to be a marijuana-based religious center uh, when I was there in, in the city. And they thought that this would exempt them from criminal laws, and the courts saw through it. So juries are actually, their whole purpose is to discern when people are being truthful and when they're being disingenuous, and they're really good at doing that. Not perfect, but good. And I think that that's the the protection that we have built in against um, bad faith arguments. And I was going to give Javad the last word here, but we literally only have room for like three words. Javad, do you think you can answer in a sentence or less? Yeah, my worry is the state passing these laws. That's the state action that I'm worried about. Okay. And actually, Javad, you did an excellent job of of keeping it right to the point. This has been a great panel. I've been just so intrigued by so much that we've argued about today. Javad Ghazali, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm excited that you called me an excellent attorney, so my mom had to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope she was listening. She always does. (laughs) That is Javad Ghazali of the St. Louis firm Ghazali Wersh. Dave Rowland, Director of Litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Susan McGraw, our last minute pinch hitter. I think she knocked it out of the park. Susan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. And Susan is with the St. Louis University School of Law. Today's episode was produced by our executive producer, Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.